Chapter Eighteen of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne. Translated by Ellen E. Fuhr, eighteen forty eight. Chapter eighteen. The desert. It was indeed no better than a desert, which now lay before the travellers, when on the twenty fifth of December they completed the measurement of another degree, and reached the northern boundary of the Karoo, they found no difference between the district they had been traversing and the new country, real desert arid and scorching, over which they were now about to pass. The animals belonging to the caravan suffered greatly from the dearth alike of pasturage and water. The last drops of rain in the pools had dried up, and it was an acrid soil, a mixture of clay and sand, very unfavorable to vegetation. The waters of the rainy season filtered quickly through the sandy strata, so that the region was incapable of preserving for any length of time a particle of moisture. More than once has Dr. Livingstone carried his adventurous explorations across one of these barren districts. The very atmosphere was so dry that iron left in the open air did not rust. The distinguished traveller relates that the leaves hung weak and shriveled, that the mimosas remained closed by day, as well as by night, that the scarabees laid on the ground expired in a few seconds, and that the mercury in the ball of a thermometer buried three inches in the soil rose at midday to one hundred and thirty four degrees Fahrenheit. These records which Livingstone had made were now verified by the astronomers between the Karoo and Lake Ngami. The suffering and fatigue especially of the animals, continually increased, and the dry, dusty grass afforded them but little nourishment. Nothing ventured on the desert. The birds had flown beyond the Zambezi for fruit and flowers, and the wild beasts shunned the plain, which offered them no prey. During the first fortnight in January, the hunters caught a sight of a few couples of those antelopes which are able to exist without water for several weeks. There were some oryxes like those in whose pursuit Sir John had sustained so great a disappointment, and there were besides some dappled, soft-eyed kamas which venture beyond the green pastures, and which are much esteemed for the quality of their flesh. To travel under that burning sun through the stifling atmosphere to work for days and nights in the oppressive sultriness was fatiguing in the extreme. The reserve of water evaporated continuously, so they were obliged to ration themselves to a painfully limited allowance. However such were their zeal and courage, they mastered all their troubles, and not a single detail of their task was neglected. On the 25th of January they completed their seventh degree. The number of triangles constructed having amounted to fifty-seven. 
only a comparatively small portion of the desert had now to be traversed, and the bushmen thought that they would be able to reach Lake Ngami before their provision was exhausted. The colonel and his companions thus had definite hopes, and were inspired to persevere. But a hired bush chessman, who knew nothing of any scientific ardor, and who had been long ago reluctant to pursue their journey, could hardly be encouraged to hold out. Unquestionably, they suffered greatly and were objects for commiseration. Already, too, some beasts of burden, overcome by hard work and scanty food, had been left behind, and it was to be feared that more would fall into the same helpless condition. Mokum had a difficult task to perform, and as murmurs and recriminations increased, his influence more and more lost its weight. It became evident that the want of water would be a serious obstacle, and that the expedition must either retrace its steps or, at the risk of meeting the Russians, turn to the right of the meridian to seek some of the villages, which were known to be scattered along Livingstone's route. It was not long, however, before the bushman, one morning, came to the colonel and declared himself powerless against the increasing difficulties. The drivers, he said, refused to obey him, and there were continued scenes of insubordination, in which all the natives joined. The colonel perfectly well understood the situation, but stern to himself, he was stern to others. He refused to suspend his operations and declared that, although he went alone, he would continue to advance. His two companions, of course, agreed, and professed themselves ready to follow him. Renewed efforts of Makum persuaded the natives to venture a little farther. He felt sure that a caravan could not be more than five or six days' march from Lake Ngami, and once there, the animals could find pasturage and shade, and the men an abundance of fresh water. All these considerations he laid before the principal bush chessmen. He showed them that it was really best to advance northwards. If they turned to the west, their march would be perilous, and to turn back was only to find the Karoo desolate and dry. The natives at length yielded to his solicitations, and the almost exhausted caravan continued its course. Happily, this vast plain was in itself favorable to all astronomical observations, so that no delay rose from any natural obstruction. On one occasion, there sprang up a sudden hope that nature was about to restore to them a supply of the water, of which she had been so niggardly. A lagoon, a mile or two in extent, was discovered on the horizon. The reflection was indubitably of water, proving that what they saw was no mirage due to the unequal density of the atmospheric strata. The caravan speedily turned in that direction, and the lagoon was reached towards five in the evening. Some of the horses broke away from their drivers and galloped to the longed-for water. Having smelt it, they plunged into their chests, but almost immediately returned to the bank. They had not drunk, and when the bush chessmen arrived, they found themselves by the side of a lagoon so impregnated with salt that its water could not be touched. Disappointment was keen, it was little short of despair. 
Mokum thought that he should never induce the natives to proceed, but fortunately the only hope was in advancing, and even the natives were alive to the conviction that Lake Ngami was the nearest point where water could be procured. In four days, unless retarded by its labors, the expedition must reach the shores of the lake. Every day was momentous. To economize time, Colonel Everest formed larger triangles and established fewer posts. No efforts were spared to hurry on the progress of the survey. Notwithstanding the application of every energy, the painful sojourn in the desert was prolonged, and it was not until the 21st of February that the level ground began to be rough and undulating. A mountain, 500 or 600 feet high, was descried about 50 miles to the northwest. The bushman recognized it as Mount Skorzev, and pointing to the north said, Lake Ngami is there. Dengami, Dengami, echoed the natives with noisy demonstration. They wished to hurry on in advance over the fifty miles, but Mokum restrained them, asserting that the country was infested by Makololos and that it was important to keep together. Colonel Everest himself, eager to reach the lake, resolved to connect by a single triangle the station he was now occupying with Mount Skorzev. The instruments were therefore arranged, and the angle of the last triangle, which had been already measured from the south, was measured again from the station. Mokum, in his impatience, only established a temporary camp. He hoped to reach the lake before night, but he neglected none of his usual precautions, and prudently sent out horsemen right and left to explore the underwood. Since the oryx chase, the Makololos seemed indeed to have abandoned their watch. Still, he would not incur any risk of being taken by surprise. Thus carefully guarded by the bushmen, the astronomers constructed their triangle. According to Emery's calculations, it would carry them nearly to the twentieth parallel, the proposed limit of their arc. A few more triangles on the other side of Lake Ngami would complete their eighth degree. To verify the calculations, a new base would subsequently be measured directly on the ground, and a great enterprise would be ended. The ardor of the astronomers increased as they approached the fulfillment of their task. Meanwhile, there was considerable curiosity as to what the Russians on their side had accomplished. For six months, the members of the commission had been separated, and it seemed probable to the English that the Russians had not suffered so much from heat and thirst since their course had lain nearer Livingstone's route and therefore in less arid regions. After leaving Colabang, they would come across various villages to the right of the meridian where they could easily revittle their caravan. But still it was not unlikely that in these less arid, though more frequented country, Matthew Strack's little band had been more exposed to the attacks of the plundering Makololos, and this was the more probable, since they seemed to have abandoned the pursuit of the English caravan. Although the colonel Eberengrost had no thought to bestow on these things, Sir John and Emery had often discussed the doings of their former comrades. They wondered 
whether they would come across them again, and whether they would find that they had obtained the same mathematical result as themselves, and whether the two computations of a degree in South Africa would be identical. Emery did not cease to entertain kind memories of his friend, knowing well that Zorn, for his part, would never forget him. The measurement of the angles was now resumed. To obtain the angle, at the station they now occupied, they had to observe two points of sight. One of these was formed by the conical summit of Mount Scorziv, and the other by a sharp peak, three or four miles to the left of the meridian, whose direction was easily obtained by one of the telescopes of the repeating circle. Mount Scorzov was much more distant. Its position would compel the observers to diverge considerably to the right of the meridian, but on examination they found they had no other choice. The station was therefore observed with the second telescope of the repeating circle, and the angular distance between Mount Scorzov and the smaller peak was obtained. Notwithstanding the impatience of the natives, Colonel Everest, as calmly as though he were in his own observatory, made many successive registries from the graduated circle of his telescope, and then, by taking the average of all his readings, he obtained a result rigorously exact. The day glided on, and it was not until the darkness prevented the reading of the instruments that the colonel brought his observations to an end, saying, I am at your orders, Mokum. We will start as soon as you like. And none too soon, replied Mokum. Better had we accomplished our journey by daylight. The proposal to start met with unanimous approval, and by seven o'clock the Thursday party were once more on the march. Some strange foreboding seemed weighing on the mind of Mokum, and he urged the three Europeans to look carefully to their rifles and to be well provided with ammunition. The night grew dark. The moon and stars were repeatedly veiled in mist, but the atmosphere near the ground was clear. The bushman's keen vision was ever watching the flanks and front of the caravan, and his unwanted disquietude could not fail to be noticed by Sir John, who was likewise on the watch. They toiled through the weary evening, occasionally stopping, to gather together the loiterers, and at ten o'clock they were still six miles from the lake. The animals gasped for breath in an atmosphere so dry that the hydrometer could not have detected a trace of moisture. Mokum was indefatigable in his endeavours to keep the disorganised party close together, but in spite of his remonstrances, the caravan no longer presented a compact nucleus. Men and beasts stretched out into a long file, and some oxen had sunk exhausted to the ground. The dismounted horsemen could hardly drag themselves along, and any stragglers could have been easily carried off by the smallest band of natives. Mokum went in evident anxiety from one to another, and with word and gestures tried to rally the troop. But his success was far from complete, and already, without his knowledge, some of his men were missing. By eleven o'clock, 
the foremost wagons were hardly more than three miles from their destination in the gloom of night mount skorzeb stood out distinctly in its sultry height like an enormous pyramid and the obscurity made its dimensions appear greater than they actually were unless mokum were mistaken lake ngami lay just behind mount skorzeb so that the caravan must pass around its base in order to reach the tract of fresh water by the shortest route the bushman in company with the three europeans took the lead and prepared to turn to the left when suddenly some distinct though distant reports arrested their attention they reined in their horses and listened with a natural anxiety in a country where the natives use only lances and arrows the report of european firearms was rather startling the colonel and sir john simultaneously asked the bushman from whence the sound could proceed mokum asserted that he could perceive a light in the shadow at the summit of mount skorzeb and that he had no doubt that the makololos were attacking a party of europeans europeans cried emery yes replied mokum these reports can only be produced by european weapons but what europeans could they be began sir john be who they may broke in the colonel we must go to their assistance yes come on said emery with no little excitement before setting off for the mountain mokum for the last time tried to rally their small band but when the bushman turned round the caravan was dispersed the horses unyoked the wagons forsaken and a few scattered shadows were flying along the plain towards the south the cowards he cried then turning to the english he said well we must go on the englishmen and the bushmen gathering up all the remaining strength of their horses darted on to the north after a while they could plainly distinguish the war cry of the makololos whatever was their number it was evident they were making an attack on mount skorzev from the summit of which the flashes of fire continued groups of men could be faintly distinguished ascending the sides soon the colonel and his companions were on the rear of the besiegers abandoning their worn-out steeds and shouting loud enough to be heard by the besieged they fired at the mass of natives the rapidity with which they reloaded caused the makololos to imagine themselves assailed by a large troop the sudden attack surprised them and letting fly a shower of arrows and assegais they retreated without losing a moment the colonel sir john emery the bushman and the sailors never desisting from firing darted among the group of natives of whose bodies no less than fifteen soon strewed the ground the makololos divided the europeans rushed into the gap and overpowering the foremost ascended the slope backwards in a few minutes they had reached the summit which was now entirely in darkness the besieged having suspended their fire for fear of injuring those who had come so opportunely to their aid they were the russian astronomers strux palander zorn and their five sailors all were there but of all the natives belonging to their caravan there remained but a faithful pioneer 
the Bushchessmen had been as faithless to them as they had been to the English. The instant the colonel appeared, Strux darted from the top of a low wall that crowned the summit. The English, he cried. Yes, replied the colonel gravely. But now neither Russian nor English nationalities be forgotten. For mutual defence we are kinsmen, and that we are one and all Europeans. End of chapter 18